You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here with the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us on this monumentous day because today's podcast, what you are about to hear, is what I hope will be our last Sunday morning Zoom meeting for a good long while. Long story short, you'll hear more about it here in a minute. We are moving to in-person, real, live church services on Sunday the 25th. Super excited about this. We'll talk about it more in a minute, but also want to make mention of an upcoming women's worship gathering. Come away, my beloved. May 20th to 22nd. Jennifer Roberts, Rachel Faagutu, my wife Kelsey will all be speaking, and registration on this is free. Now, there is a meal plan you can buy if you want to save time from running back and forth because restaurants are a little bit at a distance. It's at the Red Hawk Ranch, which is just south of Kansas City. We would love to have you, ladies. Check it out at thebridgekc.church, thebridgekc.church. That's all I'm going to ramble about today. We're going to go straight into the teaching from Sunday morning as we get ready to talk about what it means to cross over into God's promises. Stay with us. Amen. Well, Lord willing, going forward, uh, we're going to be meeting in person, and that's a huge change for us. I was telling uh, everybody on Friday night, in the last year, I have taught on Zoom about 60 times. I've done about 90 podcasts, and it, it's it's kind of interesting what a year holds when you just say, okay, Lord, we'll, we'll do. We'll do whatever you put in front of us, and it's been that kind of year. I want to set the stage this morning by reading from Ezekiel, I'm sorry, from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. Um, And this is a fairly common passage. Everybody is fairly familiar with this, but I just want to read it over us. And I just got a message that Jackmans are not yet in their new place. So that's in the process, but but, uh, not yet quite there. Um, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. Again, most commonly these verses are... are, uh, read in order. They just read a few to make a point, but I kind of like to read all eight of them this morning. Biblical scholarship is not real definitive on who wrote Ecclesiastes, but a subscript in early documents uh, refer to someone that they call the preacher, and they give some indication that it could be Solomon. Elsewhere in Scripture, uh, calls Solomon the wisest man who ever lived, or the wisest king who ever lived. So the words of this book carry kind of a special gravitas. They've got a presence that can't be brushed over. So just for a minute, I want to ask you to do this. Well, this is why I didn't ask you to turn to it. Uh, close your eyes for a minute and let the last 12 months of change just kind of move through you for a moment. Consider the events of the past year, the times, Consider the changes that you've seen and reflect on the care of God in relation to your heart through all of this as I read these eight verses. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, 
a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Sounds like COVID. A time to seek and a time to lose and a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And Lord, we ask that you would help us see clearly the time that we are in. What is different, what is new, what is specific about what is going on and how we can respond to it in appropriate timing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Set the scene for you, the last week of August 1985. And two weeks earlier, I had turned 18. I remember laying on my bed late at night in the upstairs bedroom of the farmhouse that I lived in my entire life, knowing that in the morning everything changed because my car was sitting out in the gravel driveway, packed to the gills. In the morning, I would leave for college. And it would almost be impossible to overstate the amount of expectation I had for how life was going to be different starting tomorrow. And I don't say that because life was bad. I had a fantastic childhood. I had great parents. There was never a day that I really lacked for anything or had anything substantial to worry about. But I knew that the next morning when I got up and drank my coffee and I got in that little burnt orange vinyl upholstery, no air conditioning, 1981 Chevy Citation, that my world was going to change. It was a shift in seasons. And I felt like I'd been preparing it for it my whole life, like you do when you're just turning 18. It was a shift in seasons. Now, when you can point to a specific day like that, it's hardly ever true. You only get a handful of days like that. Uh, when you leave for college, maybe when you get married, maybe the day that you move across country to take a new job. Very rarely is there a day on a calendar that you can point to and say that after that, things were different. In a sense, this morning, I feel like I'm lying on that bunk in my little upstairs bedroom upstairs again, and I can hear the night birds, and I can feel my heart thump because change is coming. After a year of meeting like this, we begin meeting in person on a weekly basis. Now, if you didn't get the email or you just want to hear it again, because I like saying it over and over, those of you who are in town are welcome to join us in person next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday after that, and so on. We will see one another, we'll worship together, the whole ball of wax. Now, from the beginning, we've had people from out of town, and I want you to know that uh, that has been on our hearts, on leaders, as we've talked about, well, what about those who aren't near? How do we do this? So we will be streaming. Uh, also, again, like I said earlier, for those of you that have uh, just determined that church and jammies is just too hard to give up, uh, we'll be streaming on YouTube, and, and we'll have details on how you can find us there. But for the rest of us, we'll gather at 10.30 a.m. at the Culture House in Olathe. It's on 117th Street, just north of 119th, near I-35. Uh, it's a dance studio. It is nothing fancy, but it is perfect. It'll be little, it'll be rough, it'll be ugly, but it will be beautiful to the Lord. We are ending our fast on that day with this tremendous answer from the Lord. And I, I don't want to uh, brush past that. That was the timing of God. Uh, the place can seat about 200, and we can gather there. It's going to be great. There's room for children and, uh, and room for us. I want to bring you in a little bit into the timeline of kind of how that came to be and then and dive into Scripture. If you're a parent, you know that there are some disciplines 
that you want to instill early in the life of your child or it's going to be much harder. If you do not teach a child to do chores when they are little, the chance of them warming to the idea when they're 16 is not likely. Yesterday, we had Scout and Zoe cleaning our refrigerator. Was it the most efficient way to clean the refrigerator? No, but we are setting in motion refrigerator cleaners for years to come. Okay, so you do things in infancy or you do things at a young age to instill value. And the same thing is true of churches. What we learn in infancy and as a young church are things that we will grow into, and generosity is one of those. The Lord has been speaking to a lot of our, our leaders about the idea of generosity. And last week, the Lord began to speak to a few of our people about the upcoming Women's Conference in May that we mentioned in the email that went out. We'll continue to talk about, we'll talk about more next week. We decided that rather than charging for tickets, we really wanted to offer this conference as a gift to the entire community. Now, it's not necessarily cheap to do. There's a lot of things we need to, to assemble. We've got to have a tent. We've got to have sound. We've got to have guests that we provide honorariums for to bless them, to be able to come and minister. But it was important to us to do this out of a spirit of generosity. Now, at the same time that we're praying through this and talking about this, someone was making a connection on our behalf with Culture House. After deciding that we would offer the women's conference as a gift and having faith that the Lord would provide for that, I then met with the director of Culture's House, Culture House, and they swung the door wide open for us at a really reasonable rental rate for a weekly service. There is a dynamic relationship between generosity and gratitude. Remember, there's a time for everything. And in this time that we're in, the Lord is highlighting the words of 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 10 and 11. He says, He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And through us, we'll produce a thanksgiving to God. So next Sunday, together... I believe in part because of our decision to be generous with this women's conference, we will be able to gather together. We'll end our fast at a building within sight of more restaurants than you can eat at in a month of Sundays. I'm pretty excited about that. We went and looked at the building the other day with my little girls, and they came out and they said, restaurants, that's a game changer for us on a Sunday morning. We're super excited that Lou Engel is going to come and bring our 21-day fast to a close. If you have never heard Lou you are in for an experience. He is unlike anybody else that we know. And his being there at the end of our fast has the most beautiful poetic ring to it. Years ago, when we were in D.C. with Lou, NBC's show Dateline came and did a feature on him because he had gathered all of these young people to fast and pray for their nation. And they asked him, um, what do you think these kids get out of this? And Lou sat on a park bench on Capitol Hill, and he looked down a little, and he goes, I don't know, maybe they find God. And as soon as he said, maybe they find God, somewhere on Capitol Hill, church bells begin to ring. And the interviewer who had spent enough time with him to realize that Lou sees God in everything, made the comment, when Lou says this, church bells begin to ring, and in Lou's world, there are no accidents. And he just lives with this heightened sense of what God is doing. In Lou's world, there are no accidents. It is no accident that he's going to be here as we close out our fast to commission us and to pray over us 
Lou would say it's the hand of God at work. Because this church is more than just Kelsey and I, it's you. You have some needs. You need greeters. You need hospitality people. You need kids workers. You need sound tech. And that's just beginning because everything changes once we start to gather in real time. We have waited for a year to start regular Sunday morning services, but after a year, we have one, and guess what? The next one happens seven days later. That's really fast. And so because we're on this of the brink moment where things change from here forward, I'm going to look at a scripture where other people who stood on a substantial brink of change reacted and see if we can bring some of their learnings into our situation. Other people's experiences, particularly in scripture, are free grad school classes for us. And we are about to get a master's degree in the idea of crossing over from one thing to the next, maybe even a doctorate in the changing of seasons, whatever you call it, we're about to get an education and I don't wanna waste the lessons that other people have learned. So if you're in Joshua, like I mentioned a long time ago, uh, I said three, but page back to Joshua one. Joshua one, reading the first six verses, kind of set the stage here. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving you to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So here they stand on the brink of the promised land. And for the people of God, it's like my August of 1985. Okay. And tomorrow morning, everything changes. They've been through a harrowing season. They started in slavery. They came out of that. But even in the coming out of that, they faced a serious and a difficult journey. So difficult that 40 years earlier, other people who had been right where they stand were unwilling to embrace the call to go into the promised land. So serious that the unwillingness of that previous generation to step into what God was calling them to do cost an entire generation God's promises. Don't confuse the promise of God with a pledge for your comfort. When God calls people to promise, it's not so their life will be easier, it's so that their life will be more meaningful. It's not about comfort, it's about growth. And growing pains are real. What God is calling us into isn't for ease, okay? It's actually for our growth. It's not so that life gets more fun, although it will be fun to be together. It is so that life gets more meaningful. This moment in history of these people is like their version of our April 20, uh, 2021. And after a long journey, they're going to inherit promises. And in the joy of what is about to happen, it would be hard to forget that a lot of hard and strange things have happened to get them there. And we can't forget that they are only a part of those who had been gathered before. Not all of the people who were called out of Egypt and the arc of their history 
is not unlike the ark of our own lives. Not all of the people who were called out of Egypt entered into the promised land. God both calls people out of things and invites them into things, and it's two different callings. In the book of Numbers, it's clear that not everybody who came out answered the call to go in. Now, the call to go out from slavery or from sin is very important. We find freedom when we answer the call to go out. Most of the church is focused on calling people out, and it is a valid call. But there is a corresponding call to call people to go in to depth and to promise and to God's presence. Repeatedly in Scripture, we read of God calling people out of Egypt. He gathered them together, said, okay, let's go on a journey. Exodus 3, 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to the good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says, okay, everybody, load the bus, pack your bags. I'm calling you out. And life was so hard and so bad where they were that the bulk of the Hebrews talk about their coming out of Egypt is about coming out. It's not about where they're going. When you're uncomfortable, any place is better than where you are. In all likelihood, a lot of the people who left with the Exodus did so without a real specific idea of where they are going. Where are we going? I don't know. We're going away from where we are. Okay, let's go. The language of being called out is found in Numbers 20, 16 as well. Moses says it this way, And we cried out to the Lord, He heard our voices, and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. That phrase of being brought out of Egypt is found over and over and over in Scripture. There's this real sense of exodus, but probably not as much a sense of the promised land until they get near it the first time. And we realize that the calling out of Egypt and the calling into the promised land were two different callings issued to the same group of people, but not everybody answers the second call correctly. In the same way, Jesus repeatedly calls people to himself, disciples, crowds of people, paralytics, the woman at the well. He issues a call to everyone to leave the slavery of their sin and follow him, but not all who came out of their sin found their way into the fullness of what he called them to. Some of them came out, to look, took a look around, went no further. Some actually, the word says, went back. Not everybody who's called out goes in. In fact, only a few of those who came out of Egypt entered into the promised land because the first time they got close, they let their own humanity completely blow the plan wide open. God's plan would have been that they would have come out of Egypt and gone directly into the promised land, but their intervention into God's plan delayed the goodness of God in their life, not just for 40 years, but for an entire generation of people. Now, this really messes with people who have an overconfidence in God's sovereignty, okay? Does God have a plan for your life? Unequivocally, yes. Will He allow you to thwart it? Yes. He's sovereign. He can do what He wants. Now, how does that work? How do you thwart the plan of a sovereign God? He loves you, and He desires voluntary love in return, and voluntary love involves trust and action by both parts. If he were only concerned about his activity and getting you from one spot to the next, he wouldn't have created a human being with a will. He would have created a robot. 
have you ever seen these videos of uh, these Boston Dynamic robots? There's this company in, in Boston called Boston Dynamics. I say they're in Boston. They could be in the Bay Area. I don't know. They're called Boston Dynamics. And uh, later, search for them on YouTube. Boston Dynamics creates these robots that are clearly robots. They don't look anything really like what they're supposed to be, but they have the motion of a human being or a dog down pat. They create a robot dog that looks more like a bicycle with legs until it starts to move. And when it starts to move, it's eerie. It looks so real. They've got video on YouTube of them with a Boston Dynamics robot dog on a leash, walking it down the street in New York City, and people are afraid of this thing. Like as it draws near, they want to pet it, but they're, they're a little bit, you shouldn't be afraid of the robot. You should be afraid of Boston Dynamics. I mean, they're, they're, it's really impressive what they're doing with these things. But God didn't create a robot. He created a human being with a will. He doesn't want to parade you down the street on a leash just to show you what he is, others what he is able to do. He wants to walk with you hand in hand through his plan for your life. And in order for that relationship to be about real love, you've got to be able to make real choices to pursue that plan. And the first time that the Israelites get to the brink of the promised land, some of them make real choices that get them cut out of the storyline. Numbers 13, one and two. Now this, we're going back in time now to the first time that they reached the banks of the Jordan, 40 years earlier. The Lord said to Moses, Send men out to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of God. From each tribe of your fathers, you shall send out a man, every one a chief among them. So on the verge of the fullness of his promises, God tells Moses to send one representative from each family tribe to investigate the promised land that he's going to give them. Now, we don't know exactly what they thought they were going to find. But we can glean from context here that once those 12 entered the promised land, at least some of them were taken back by how difficult this was. Even though it was clearly God's will for their life, they got in there and they looked at it and they said, this, this is hard. This is not the promised land. I'm not going into what I thought I was coming out for. They were clearly called out. But when the time came to leave Egypt, they were loaded up and on the bus. But now in the going in, the entering into the fullness of God's promise, this was harder than they thought it was going to be. Going out is easy. Going in is a whole different ballgame. And in Numbers 13, these spies all return. And they, they kind of deliver the good news, bad news thing. You know, They start with the good news. Numbers 13, starting in verse 25. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel and the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Now, is that literal? Were there literal honey rivers? No. What they're saying is this place abounds. It has game. It has food. It has huge fruit. And they brag on this new land, and they prepare the people for how great it's going to be. And had they stopped there, they would have shaped history for themselves. But instead, they keep talking. And in the next verse, they use one word that is the fulcrum of a lever that turns the whole situation on them. The next verse starts with the word, however. It's like huge grapes, flows of milk and honey, unbelievable bounty, 
however. And with however, they begin to describe all of the giants and the difficulties in the land. Big old grapes, however, big old giants. Big opportunity, however, big fear. Big difference from what we were called out to, but big risk in stepping into it. And sitting there on the banks of the Jordan with God's promises within a stone's throw of their camp, okay? I'm sitting here on Metcalf. I can look out this window. I see there's Metcalf and another building with the promised land right there. All you got to do is cross Metcalf. With that, they say, this is too much for us. It was one thing to come out of Egypt. It's one thing to be called out, but it's another thing to enter in and take the promised land. And we are like grasshoppers. We are not up to this. Now, there were two men, Caleb and later we learned Joshua, who stood at odds to their fellow spies. And it's important to know they were not uninformed, they were not delusional, because we tend to think of people that are more positive than we are as a little bit naive. But they weren't. They had seen the same huge grapes, they'd seen the same bountiful hills, they'd even seen the same giants. They don't deny the giants. But when the naysayers had their say, the Bible says that Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome. He doesn't say it's not a hard task. He says, we can do this. Most of us know the story. The Lord announced then and there that just because you were called out of Egypt didn't mean you were going to enter into the promised land. And some of those people who had endured great trial and saw miracle after miracle of God's provision, would never see the fullness of His promise, because at the last minute, it just looked too hard. Now, like the Israelites, we are on the verge of promise, okay? And just like the Israelites, for the bridge, attitude will shape experience going forward. If you're taking notes at all, write that down. Attitude will shape experience going forward. Are there family or friendship experiences in your life that you encountered with a group of people and later those people would have described those experiences very differently? Any have those? Like you, you reflect on it, you go, I remember it very differently than you do. Now, tell a story on our family here, which is kind of a weekly event at this point. But uh, Kelsey eats really healthy. But growing up, her mom's version of home cooking was to use the home phone to order, you know, to, to call and, and bring food in. She might make mac and cheese once in a while, but I, she just didn't cook that much. She could, she just didn't. And uh, Kelsey eats really well now, but as a child, they ate all kinds of things that we would not normally eat. And because of that, she has in the past harbored a slightly irrational, fond memory for places like White Castle. Um, I don't think they, they don't have White Castle in Kansas City. Uh, White Castle is um, on on the on the tier of of quality of food. It's not very high. Okay, it's 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 it just is what it is. It's pretty low. And White Castle never made its way to North Dakota, so I don't have the same affection that she did because she ate it as a kid. I could take it or leave it. My kids, however, have a history of vegetables and the like, because Kelsey has eaten differently, and our, our kids think about food differently than probably we did as kids. However, when the, little, when the older boys were little, the oldest was maybe five, so Grayson would have just been an infant, been one. We're driving across Indiana somewhere, and we drive past a White Castle, and Kelsey has this wave of nostalgia for White Castle, and uncharacteristically says, let's get White Castle. 
So we pull in. She wanted to introduce Jackson, her five-year-old, to this childhood treat. The anticipation for White Castle was palpable, okay? Like she was, she was anxious for it, and mostly for her child to have this thing that she had as a kid. So we go through and we buy, you know, you buy like six a piece because they're little tiny hamburgers. And we, we buy a box of White Castle and we, we hand one back to him. Now, keep in mind, this kid had eaten vegetables or, you know, just really well-prepared food. And we hand him a White Castle slider and he looks at it and he starts to cry. Like nothing in this child makes him want to eat this thing. It's like he knows better than mom and dad at this point. And we were like, just, just try it. It's, it's good. It looks bad for me. Well, it is, but just try it. It's good. And I remember him weeping, like tears, saying, why are you making me eat this? It was the same product, okay, that Kelsey grew up eating, but attitude affected experience. Oftentimes the very same event or product can solicit very different responses from people. It is fascinating that these 12 spies who endured the same exodus, saw the same miracles, had the same leader, watched the same pillar of fire, followed the same cloud of smoke, sat in the same Zoom meetings for a year, bore witness to the same opportunity, and had radically different uh, perspectives of what they were being offered by the Lord. To two of them, it looked like really rewarding work. And to 10 of them, it just looked impossible. Some saw difficulty and opportunity. Others only saw difficulty. Now, the ones who only saw difficulty weren't really wrong about the facts, but the ones who rose to opportunity were more right and saw more glory and more power in their life than anybody else. To the uncooperative 10, it ultimately meant not going in. They came out of slavery, but they never went into the fullness I believe, out of fear and a resistance to hard work. To those who said yes to the opportunity and did not shrink back, they were part of founding a nation that would host the very presence of God on the earth. They paid a price to clear the land of all those giants, but at some point down the road, a temple was built. And in that temple, the very glory of God would be manifest. And the presence of God would be so thick that if the priest didn't mind his P's and Q's, he would drop dead, not because God was a killer, but because he had drawn so near that it would overwhelm the human frame. Now, did they understand that as they entered into the promised land? Probably not. They all entered the promised land thinking, we're going to get better living conditions and we're going to have what God wants for us. But when God calls people to promise, it's not just to make life better, it's to make life deeper and make life richer. What were Caleb and Joshua signing up for at this point? I don't think they were fighting just for possession of oversized grapes. I think they were fighting for opportunity to clear a frontier that would give their kids and their grandkids space to host God and that He would dwell there. After being called out of Egypt, honestly, in your 50s or 60s, it'd be easier not to fight into the promised land. Just wander around the desert for a while, glad to be free of your oppressors. But for our children and our grandchildren, I want to fight some battles and I want to take some new land. Let me say this about the church that the Lord is forming here and really across the city. This isn't unique to the bridge. It is for us, but we are really laying the groundwork for younger lives and even lives yet unborn. 
Caleb is a fascinating character. He spent the waning years of his life in a literal war for the promises of God, but it paid off in centuries of the undeniable presence of God for his descendants. The other 10 spies who have the same invitation to promise probably thought he was a unnecessary risk taker, but his descendants thought he was a genius. Who matters to you? What's the payoff to obedience to God here? When the land is cleared, we, and if not us, then certainly our children and those who follow, get the joy of hosting God in a way that they could not have outside the fullness of the land that He's calling us to fight for. As we move into public services, we have great anticipation, okay? I want to see people saved. I want to see families changed. I want to see your neighbors encounter the Lord in a way that they never have before. But at the risk of sounding like those things are not important, they, they really are, at the heart of it, we want to build a place for the glory of God to rest and be glorified in our lives and in the lives of those around us. I'm hungry for this. I want my kids to know what it means to sit in God's presence without a sermon to lead them there. I am feeling in my heart some measure of what David felt when he wrote in Psalm 132, I will not enter my house or get in my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Friends, we've got late nights ahead of us, okay? Late nights and early mornings. We have work ahead of us. We have some financial sacrifices in front of us. I was speaking with Michael Gromer the other night, and we were chuckling because it dawned on us, we need an offering basket. We've never needed an offering basket before. Okay, all these things that are new to the bridge. And we are going to lean into what he has called us to do, not just to run programs and enjoy being together, although we'll do those things and we will celebrate that. But that's not the point. We're going to surrender our expectations of ease until we have built a place for God to dwell. And all the things that we're hoping for as they come into fruition in His presence, not because we manipulated things or we got the marketing right or we invited the right people, but because we said, God, will you draw near here? And our attitude about what we're being called into will affect our experience because those with a heart to fight for the fullness of God in the promised land will see it. But those like in the Old Testament, who shrink back, face a season of wandering. But there's no going back to normal. <laughs> you know, remember, we talked about it almost a year ago. Normal's outweighed its usefulness. And we find ourselves right on the brink going, it's right there. Now, last, the last year has been really hard. Okay? It's been rewarding, but it's been hard. It has included unexpected provision and blessing and unexpected challenges. And through the sovereignty of God and our weak little yes, which honestly, that's all admit, some weeks, that's all we had, has got us where we stand today. But I believe not just in my own heart, although it's true in my own heart, but also by the invitation of the Lord, we are done wandering. We're done connecting only on Zoom. Be real honest, I'm done with my own kids saying, do we have a church? Just being real honest. I want to partner with the Lord and build something. It's time to enter in 
to what all of this experience has all been about. It's time to pay the price and take the land and start building a dwelling place for His presence. Now, we don't face physical giants. There are no boogeymen out there trying to stop us. Maybe some demonic powers, but no people. But we do need help. The worst part of Zoom is it's just a talking head. That's all you got. You know, and it's, worst of all, it's even my head, okay? That's the, you get that. But the best part of Zoom is you can do it with just a talking head. It's easy. What God is inviting us into is not something that one person can do. That's not the family way. That's not how he builds a house. And so going forward, I'm asking for your yes, okay? I'm asking for your yes in prayer. I'm asking for your yes in participation. Like I said, we've waited a year now for a, a regular Sunday morning service, and now we get it, and then another one happens seven days later. And we need those who will greet. We need those that will say, I can make coffee. We need those that will say, hey, let me take the kids. I'll, I'll do it this week so that parents can worship. We need people to kind of straighten the place up when the service is over. We're in a really good situation. We do not have a lot of setup and tear down. We do not need to carry chairs. We do not need to set up a sound system. But there is going to be just straightening and making sure the place looks nice. We're going to need finances as we begin to develop ministries. Let me just say for the past year, uh, the amount of faithfulness and finances out of this group has been remarkable. I, I Never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that many of you would have been so generous. And I don't, I don't know who. We run the finances in such a way that I don't know what comes from where. But I do know that very many of you have given sacrificially. And others may have leaned back, I'm assuming, in saying, you know, when this thing gets real, when, this, when we're on the edge of the Jordan and we're ready to cross Metcalf and go into what the next season is, then I'm in and, and, and we're there. And, and if that's been you, then we need your participation as well. If you see a fraction of the future, I want to challenge you to ask what your role is in serving. Because the promise and the presence of God resides right over there. We just have to fight for it. It doesn't come easily, but it is rewarding. And the reward is paid off for generations.